We're looking at Ruth chapter 1 this morning, and we're going to read the entirety of the chapter. We're going to read from verse 1 down to verse 22. And uh, if you have a copy of Scripture, I know you're going to find it helpful to have that open and to be reading along with me. If you hit First Samuel, take a left. If you hit Judges, take a right. And if you like numbers, it's on page 222. And we're looking at Ruth chapter 1 this morning. Um, and before we do look at this first chapter in this beautiful letter in God's Word, let me pray for us and ask His blessing on it. Father, we thank you for how you have given us every portion of Scripture uh, in such a unique and such a perfect way. We thank you that you have breathed it out for our needs and your purposes. We uh, come before you to be humbled under your word, to receive with meekness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. We pray, our Father, that you would give us wisdom and understanding in the mystery of Christ, that you would, above all things, Show us Jesus. We would see Jesus this morning. We would see the Son of God in his mediatorial glory and his beauty, his majesty, his power, his wisdom, his grace, his justice, and all of his redemptive fullness. And so, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, please hear us as we commit ourselves to you for the preaching and the hearing and receiving and believing and keeping of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ruth chapter 1, beginning... In verse 1, and very helpfully, uh, the writer, whether that is a man or a woman, be an interesting question, the writer says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, not Oprah, Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went out on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband." If I should say I have hope, even if I should say, should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. And then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you, for where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? And she said, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, which literally means bitter. Naomi, pleasant. Mara, bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things about Scripture, and it does this Everywhere it doesn't in every genre, in every book, in every uh, in every chapter, it sets out the great men and women of faith. It sets them out as the men and women of faith that God has prepared them to be, and it sets them out as an example to other believers. And one of the things that we might do as we read through the scriptures, and one of the things all of us are perhaps guilty of doing, is thinking the men and the women in the Bible are extraordinary men and women. There is a temptation to think. I'm not like them. I'm not an Abraham. I'm not a Jacob. I'm no David. I am no Ruth. Perhaps ladies would say, I am no Esther. I am no Sarah. And, and we tend to look at the characters of Scripture and think that they're extraordinary. And one of the interesting things about the book of Ruth is that the book of Ruth presents to us very ordinary people. It is a beautiful narrative. It is a beautiful story that at the outset introduces us to very ordinary people living a very ordinary life. In fact, a very difficult ordinary life and a a people that are longing for an extraordinary God. In a very real sense, we could say the book of Ruth sets out ordinary people with an extraordinary God who is working out his extraordinary purposes in extraordinary ways in their lives. And you're tempted, as this book opens, to to ask the question, if you had never read Ruth, if you had not grown up in a church, if you had not grown up uh, in Israel all those days reading it, and you come to this book and you're reading this first chapter, you wonder, what, what sort of story is this? It seems like a tragedy at the outset. It seems... Uh, it seems like uh, later on it's it's a romance. It seems like uh, it seems like it, it's a combination of tragedy and romance, and and you wonder what sort of book is this? And you're wondering as you're reading through this first chapter what is going to happen to these people. Here are three women. It's a tale of three women, and they're at crossroads. Um, it is the story of these three ordinary women, one Jew and two Gentiles here in chapter one, and tragedies bef- befallen them. But by the time we come to the end of the book, we know that this is neither a tragedy nor a romance, but that this book is redemptive in nature. It is a redeeming book. It is a book about how God redeems in the darkest of circumstances, fulfilling his gracious purposes, and he writes grace all over the lives 
of his people, even when they're unaware that he is doing that. It is, in many respects, a beautiful companion to the book of Genesis, isn't it? The same things that were happening in that patriarchal narrative are now happening in the lives of Naomi and Ruth. And as we come to consider this book about God's redeeming grace and how he manifests that grace in dark periods, we want to first see that God's grace comes in uh, in difficult circumstances. The book opens and tells us that this story, this historical account is happening in the days when the judges ruled. Now, everything about the opening of this story is dark. If you have spent any time reading the book of Judges, you see that it is a story of God's judgment on the nation, his judgment on his people. And there is a spiral. The people of God rebel. They become like the nations around them. They reject the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They turn to idols. God sends oppression. They fall under that oppression. God sends them a judge. The judge delivers them. And then it happens over and over and over again. And then at the end of the book, it doesn't happen. There's not another judge. And the rebellion is as dark as it can be. And there is no king in Israel. And it's this sort of no man's land between uh, Israel coming into the promised land and God establishing his kingdom. And there at that point, God is at work in the nation, in the judges. But here in the book of Ruth, we're told that God is at work during that period in the lives of of his people. Isn't that interesting? He's focused on the nation and the judges. In Ruth, he is focused on the lives of an individual family and individuals in particular. And what that says is that even when all the circumstances are dark, and even when the nation itself is turned away from God, God has not forgotten his people. And it's interesting because if I were to ask you who were the main characters, in this first chapter, you might say, well, Naomi is the main character. And some of you may say, well, Ruth is the main character. And some of you may even anticipate the end and say, Boaz. Boaz is the main character. And all of those would be wrong. God is the main character. God is at work from the very beginning in the darkest of days in Israel's history, in the darkest of times, in days of oppression, in days of hopelessness, God is bringing his redeeming purposes to bear. Now, I think that's important for us, especially as we're heading into this election year and we're bemoaning the future of America and the church. If you think that God works in times of prosperity and bounty, then you do not know how the God of the Bible works. He almost exclusively works in times of difficulty and trial and darkness and challenges and persecution. And, and, you know, I think it's an important lesson for us because for many of us, we tend to think while we reject the prosperity gospel, we embrace it subtly by thinking as long as I have all my privileges and freedoms and bounty, things are good and God is blessing. And here, in fact, in the darkest days in Israel, notice, notice that God sends a famine and he sends a famine to the very heart of the nation. And he, he, he not only sends other nations to oppress Israel, now he sends them famine so that there's no food, even in, and this is the important point, even in the house of bread in Bethlehem. And here's this family in Bethlehem, the house of bread, and there's no bread. 
And you see that God is doing something. And we're told that at that time, this this man, Eli Melech, his name means God is king. You wouldn't know that his name meant God is king because he seems to reject the king. and, And he seems to go into the foreign countries to find support and aid. He goes into one of the premier enemies of Israel. And even though the the narrative doesn't criticize him for it, the results seem to be indicating that what Eli Melech does is he, he, he doesn't trust the Lord. He, he decides to take matters into his own hands, and he takes his wife, Naomi, and he takes his two sons, Malon and Kilion, down with him, and he goes into the country of Moab. Now remember, Moab is that country that sprung from the incestuous relationship of Lot and one of his daughters after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was Moab and there was Ammon, and they become the Moabites and the Ammonites. And God, throughout Israel's sojourning in the wilderness, is showing us what what uh, a, a evil nation Moab is. At every point, Moab, who were given over to worshiping Shemesh uh, and fertility gods, are given over to prostitution within the cultic realm. And Israel is everywhere falling to the Moabite women. There are great dangers in Moab. God has said, have nothing to do with their religion. Have, don't let your sons marry their daughters, just like he didn't want his people to intermarry within Canaan. At every point, God was warning about the dangers and the idolatry in Moab. And yet, this Eli Melech takes his family down there. He subjects them to it. And we're told that Upon the darkness that we've seen and upon the famine that we've seen, now we're told that Eli Melech dies, Naomi is left alone, and she stays for 10 years in Moab because her sons have married Moabite women. Now, a lot can happen in 10 years. Um, I'm often grieved when I look at pictures of myself from 10 years ago. A lot happens in 10 years. A lot can happen in 10 years. And I imagine they were a long 10 years for Naomi. They are without her husband, now with her sons who have married pagan women, and she's stuck in a foreign land, perhaps in one of the most idolatrous of the foreign lands. And everything about her circumstance is saying she needs deliverance and she needs redemption. And then her sons die. Now, this is why you, you could see how some would say Ruth is a tragedy. Her husband dies. Her son dies. They're in a foreign land away from the God of Israel, away from the covenant promises, away from where God had promised to bless, away from everything they had known, away from all the the spiritual protection they should have had with the people of God in a foreign country. In the days of the judges, well back home, their people are struggling. And and it it is a dark background to what actually is a redemptive story. And notice that there are sort of stages in this play. The, the need for redemption set against all of this background is really now heightened by the fact that in the second stage, Naomi hears that God has blessed his people with food, that again there is food in the house of the Lord, that God's blessing has again come to his people. And so she decides to go back now from Moab to Israel, and she takes her two daughter-in-laws aside, and she tells them they need to go home now. It's interesting because you don't get the sense that 
uh, you don't get the sense that what Naomi is doing here uh, is very logical. You would think this is the only family she's had. She's been with them for 10 years. Why would she send them away? Why wouldn't she stay with them? Well, Naomi clearly is a woman of faith. You're going to see that come to the forefront. She is the woman of faith in this family. Uh, we have no indicator that Eli Melech, her husband, had been a man of faith. There's, n- there's not one indication that he had been a spiritual leader. But here Naomi has within her something going on. She's wrestling with the circumstances. She's wrestling with the fact that on the one hand, she has two daughters-in-law that she loves. A rare thing, may I say, about mother-in-law's. And daughter in laws. She's got two daughter in laws that she loves, and she has the God of Israel in her heart. And the God of Israel had made provision that after he gave the inheritance of the land to his people, that he would then secure that possession for every generation to come through that Leverite law of marriage and remarriage. If the son died, The daughter-in-law could remarry, and there could be a kinsman redeemer, and the land would be possessed. And you see that at work in Naomi, even in this first chapter. It doesn't really come to the forefront as clearly as we would like, but when she tells her daughters-in-law to go home, and she says, go back to your families, go back to your mothers, go back to your homes, go back to your gods, go back. And she says to them, I'm too old to bear sons for you. I'm too old to raise up a husband for you. Naomi is wrestling with what God had said and with the promise and the inheritance and wanting to be back in the place of blessing and with the reality that she had these daughter-in-laws with her. And I want to say this this morning, that you know the end of the story. You know everything that happens. You know that Ruth goes back with her. You know that Ruth goes out to the fields to glean, very interesting, the very place that had been barren. She goes to work in the very place that God had placed that famine before. And and you know that there are stages of redemption being prepared all throughout this book until God finally raises up Boaz. And you know the story that it doesn't end as a romance. You know that. You know that it ends with a genealogy. And you know that that genealogy shows us that Rahab the prostitute is part of that genealogy. And you know that Ruth the the Gentile pagan Moabitess is part of that genealogy. And you know that King David comes from that marriage between Ruth and Boaz. And you know that the Holy Spirit is intimating ultimately that these are little picture pieces in the picture of the coming Redeemer and that Jesus will ultimately come. And yet, in chapter 1, you don't know that. And if you took an inventory check of the circumstances, you know, I want to press this in this morning as firmly as I possibly can. We just finished going through Genesis and talking about how the circumstances seemed at odds with the promises of God. And, and yet, in my own life and in the lives of others um, in the church, in, in the church at large, I see that that's a lesson we constantly never want to learn. We, we never want to learn the lesson that our circumstances do not determine what God is doing. And if you took an inventory check of Ruth's circumstances and Naomi's circumstances, it looks horrific. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. She had to uproot for 10 years into a pagan land. She had to see her sons marry pagan women. Everything looks bleak. Everything. 
In fact, at the end of this chapter, uh, Naomi will try to legally change her name from blessed and plenty to bitter. She'll say, I went away full and I came home empty. Now, in fact, she went away empty and came home full, but she can't see that. She can't see what the Lord is doing in her life. Now, I want to let that just sink in this morning because, again, I think we look at our circumstances. We think as long as this is secure and this is good and this is good and that's good and this good, I'll be happy. No, you won't. You won't. You know, there are athletes who have won uh, the Super Bowl four or five times that say they're completely empty inside. You will not be happy, even if everything goes well. In fact, very interesting, you know where God didn't send the famine? He sent it on Israel, and he sent it to the heart of Judah where this family was living, but he didn't send it to Moab. So the land that had plenty and fullness, God actually gave them that so that they would continue on in their idolatry. He actually says that in the prophets, that he allowed Moab to prosper so that they would continue on in their rebellion. That's what happens. By way of contrast, God sends the hardships and the trials, and he brings Naomi to this place of desperation, crying out for redemption, longing to be back under the privilege of being in the house of the Lord with the people of God. She says, the Lord, notice verse 7, she had heard that the Lord had visited his people. Not just that the Lord had given them food. The Lord had visited his people. He had decided to be merciful to the church. He had come to make his blessings flow, to make bread in the house of bread, to bring blessing where he had sent chastisement. This book, and, and Naomi doesn't know it yet, but the need for redemption is going to result in God sending that redemption in the most unexpected of ways. You know, there are many uh, preachers and theologians reflecting on this book, and the language of William Cowper's hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, and, and they say that that really sums it up when it says, he sets his footprint in the sea, and rides upon the storm. Think about that. God's footprint in the sea can't be seen except with the eyes of faith. And Naomi doesn't realize that against this background, God is working, God is moving, God is planting his footstep in the sea. Now, there is another sense where this story and the need for redemption calls to mind um, another individual who went out to the far country. Um, there's, there's a striking parallel between the prodigal son and Naomi. Remember, he goes out to the far, there's a famine in a sense. He, he leaves full. He comes back empty. He goes out. He comes to his senses. He says, there's food enough in my father's house. I'll return to my father. I'll go back to my God. And everything about the need for redemption in the book of Ruth is crying out, turn. Turn back to the Lord. Everything about chapter 1 is saying, turn back to the Lord. In your heart, turn back to the Lord. Now, there is, there is also the faith of Ruth. And we love to fixate on this part. It's, it's intertwined. Uh, Naomi is the Jew. Ruth is the Gentile. 
Ruth, by all human standards, should have gone back to her parents. She should have stayed in Moab. It doesn't make sense. Her faith doesn't make sense. Now, let's consider for a moment the faith of Ruth. It's, it's astonishing. It's extraordinary. It's supernatural. It's God supernaturally giving this undeserved woman, this unlikely woman, this, this woman who is very ordinary and very unexpected, the, the grace to trust his covenant promises against all opposition. In the first place, she has her own mother-in-law telling her to go back. She has everything against her. It's very, very, very interesting that the way that God works in Ruth's life mirrors the way he works often in our lives and that we see that at work in the life of Jesus in the Gospels. Oftentimes, when Jesus calls people to follow him, he then tries to dissuade them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. When Jesus tries to call, when he calls people to follow him, he'll sometimes say, but the cost is great and you probably won't do it. That's essentially what Jesus does. He does it repeatedly. He'll say, you know what? Kingdom of heavens, like a man that threw a great feast and he called everybody and he said, come, come and join in this feast. And they began to make excuses. I bought a piece of land. I married a wife. And what he's doing is he's saying, he's saying the cost of discipleship is great. And in a sense, Naomi is, is putting that difficulty in front of Ruth and Orpah. And you see Orpah cave under it, don't you? You see her, you see her saying, I don't know if it's worth going and joining myself with these people and with this covenant God. I don't know if the cost is worth it. I don't know if it's worth leaving my friends and my family to follow Jesus. Jonathan Edwards has a great sermon called Ruth's Resolve. If you ever want to read a great sermon on this, Ruth's Resolve. And and in that sermon, he says, you know, the same way uh, Ruth is willing to leave everyone she knows and everything she knows to follow the Lord, not knowing where she's going, not knowing what the ultimate outcome is going to be, walking by faith, believing the promises. So, Edwards says, is often the cost of being a true disciple of Jesus. It means leaving worldly friends. It means leaving unbelieving friends. It means perhaps even following Jesus when you have an unbelieving spouse who's in opposition to you in really following Jesus, in really counting the cost of discipleship, in really knowing what it means to follow Jesus and what the loss will be. Now, that's something we don't factor enough. There's loss in following Jesus. It is costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a book called The Cost of discipleship. It's costly to follow Jesus. It's not easy. And you see that Orpah gives in twice. Naomi, she is trying to raise this opposition. Go back. Let the Lord deal with you in your house. Go back to your parents. Go back. And and notice that notice the difference in response in verse 14 between Orpah and Ruth. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Now, what was the underlying what was the underlying root of Ruth's faith? What was going on? How how could why would why would Ruth have left everything she'd ever known to go with her mother-in-law? It wasn't sorrow, it wasn't because she didn't want her to be alone. The text doesn't say that. It doesn't it doesn't say because she had a good relationship with her, though we assume that she did. I think it's because Ruth had learned about the covenant Lord and the covenant God of promise and the promises of the true and living God from her mother-in-law. 
I think that they had probably spent many days and nights talking about what God had done in the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the Exodus, in the wilderness wandering and coming into the land and conquering their enemies in the Passover and everything else that God had done. And Ruth had been listening attentively to this and God had been doing something in Ruth's heart all those years. God had been working in the heart of Ruth and he had been creating in her this faith. He had been creating in her the, the, the ability to respond to the gospel. And notice that it, it seems so small. Uh, Naomi says to her in verse 15, essentially, don't cling to me. Your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But notice Ruth's resolve. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. Now, uh, this is a picture of conversion. I have known individuals who, when they, when they were brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, it cost them leaving everything. They had to leave everything. Um, it's true for all of us, in one sense, if you're a true believer. Leaving old friends, leaving an old lifestyle, leaving old ways, old ways of thinking and acting and living and hoping and... and, and um, Ruth's resolve is remarkable, and the resolve of everyone who really comes to Jesus Christ is this remarkable. Notice Ruth says, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. The very first thing Ruth says is, I am going to the Redeemer. Ruth realizes she needs redemption, which driving Ruth forward is not sorrow for Naomi or a need to be with Naomi or friendship with Naomi. Ruth is beginning to realize that she needs a redeemer. She is hoping in the promise of redemption. She has heard her mother-in-law say that there is a coming redeemer, that Yahweh is going to send that redeemer, that there's going to be salvation for the people of God, and that he's going to come from Judah. Remember that promise in Genesis 49, that Judah, the scepter would not depart from Judah. No doubt that was part of it. Here Naomi was from Judah, and she's sharing these promises, and Ruth is resolved not to leave or to return from following her mother-in-law. And then she uses that great covenantal language. How do we know that Naomi taught her about the promises of God? How do we know that her mother-in-law cared enough about her to give her the gospel? How do we know? Because she uses covenantal language. She says, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. That is exclusively the language of the covenant promises. God said to Abraham, I will be your God and you will be my people. I will be a God to you and to your descendants after you. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will bless the nations in you. And Ruth is latching onto that. And Ruth is saying, that's what I want. I want that God. Now, to show you that contrast, notice the way Naomi speaks of Orpah. Remember, Orpah so quickly turned back after being told the cost of discipleship. And notice by way of contrast that Naomi in verse 15 says, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You see, Naomi realizes there's a spiritual dynamic at work. She realizes this is more than just geographical locale. If I, if I can put this as, as simply as I can, this is very different than anything we know. We can, we can live out the Christian life in in Savannah or San Francisco. Um, they could not live 
the Christian life very well in Moab. We can live the Christian life in America or Afghanistan. You say, wait a minute, what about all the persecution? There's Christians there, and they love Jesus, and many of them are much more fruitful than you and me in all of our fullness and bounty. We can live the Christian life wherever. They needed to be in the place that God had ordained his covenant people, his covenant promises, his covenant worship in the old covenant. And so Ruth is resolved to go back. She has bound herself not to Naomi, but she had bound herself to the God of promise, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in doing so, she had bound herself with believers. And, and that's really the point, beautiful point here. Ruth's faith has a communal aspect. When we follow Jesus, we can never just say, well, you know, I don't need church. I don't need to be with other people that profess faith in Jesus. Just, it's just me and Jesus. That never happens. You see, Ruth binds herself to the God of promise, the true and living God. And in doing so, she has bound herself to God's people. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. They are inexorably linked together. And notice that as we continue on, notice what Ruth's resolve is. She's resolved to persevere to the end in following the true God. Notice verse 17, where you die, I will die. This is a lifelong decision. This is not some rash, temporary, momentary band-aid. This is not just any decision like, well, you know, for a while I did this, and then I did this, and now I do this, and been doing this for the last 10 years. This is a lifelong decision. Where you die, I will die. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm in this for life. I am, I am resolved to follow the true and living God all the days of my life. And notice, notice that she pledges in verse 17, May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And then notice this language, When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, She said no more. Now, I want to ask you the question, as you consider your own life, and you've heard the gospel many times, no doubt. You've you've heard about Jesus maybe for decades. Um, But the question is, have you ever resolved, have you ever had the resolution of Ruth, that the sum and substance of Christianity is found in this, that we will follow the true and living God until the day of our death because he has promised redemption and because there is only redemption found in him and that that is the epicenter of our Christian lives. You know, it's very interesting. Ruth's legacy is not that she changed the world, that she transformed uh, Moab. She didn't go back to transform Moab, to Christianize Moab. Um, Her legacy, Ruth's legacy, is, is not anything that we might think of when we think of legacies. You see, the legacy of the man or the woman of faith is a legacy of saying, I will go where I don't know that God's taking me in the midst of difficult and barren circumstances. I will follow him because he has promised, and I believe that he is the true and living God. I will bind myself to his people, and I will follow him all the days of my life. That is the resolve of Ruth. And it doesn't look like what so many want. Now, Naomi doesn't even see what the Lord's doing, does she? Ruth and Naomi come back, and everybody's excited, and, and she says, call me bitter. The Lord, I went away full, and I came home empty. Now, I've already said this, but I want to 
just think through this story as we walk out here. How often we look at what's going on in our lives and we're just like Naomi. We say, I'm bitter. I wish this was going better for me. I wish that was going better for me. If just this and this and this, I do this all the time. I know you do. Just this and this and this were better, then I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't. And in fact, Naomi, if she could see the end of the story from the beginning, would realize that, as I've already said, she went away empty and she came back full. She comes back with Ruth and Ruth, unbeknownst to her, is not only going to be a blessing to the nation, she's going to be a blessing internationally, she's going to be a blessing globally, and she's going to be a blessing through all time because the Savior that you and I trust for our redemption is her descendant. No Ruth, no Jesus. No Ruth, no Redeemer. You see, see, I want to say this this morning. As we look at the faith of Ruth... And we look at the legacy of Ruth. What we want to see is that long after Ruth's life and long after all the details of this marvelous story occur, God is still working. And he's still working his purposes out. And he's still planting his footprint in the sea. And he's still doing all kinds of marvelous things. And the faith of Ruth doesn't manifest itself in her lifetime in any real tangible thing. She marries Boaz. She experiences some of that redemption. But the faith of Ruth continues to this place, to this worship service, and to everywhere God is being worshipped as people are trusting in Jesus Christ. That's the point of the genealogies. It's the point of Matthew 1. Why does does Ruth find her way into Jesus' genealogy? Because she follows the God of promise, not knowing where he's taking her. Not knowing what he's doing, she binds herself in faith to the living and true God and to his people. Now, there are so many other lessons that we'll see as we work through this book. I I want us to consider this morning as we we look at our own lives and as we we consider Jesus' call of discipleship, call to take up our cross and to follow him, call to leave even at times fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters, those of our own homes and our friends and, and acquaintances, have we, have we ever responded? This is a question. You may have been in the church 20, 30 years and haven't. That's a very real reality. 20, 30 years, you never said, that God is going to be my God, and his people are going to be my people. And where they go, I will go. And where they die, I will die. Because I will go where the God of promise is leading and I will trust him for redemption. It's not enough to know this story intellectually in the history. We don't study scripture just to get a little more intellectual knowledge. We get changed hearts from stories like this. Our hearts get changed. We say, yes, that is my God, and I will follow him. The same resolve that Ruth has, we're called to have. And then secondly, I want to just encourage you as you continue to go through life and the difficult times come and the barren times come and the trials come and, and incredible difficulties come as they did to Naomi. Are you tempted to think if I can just get out of this, if I can just make this better, then everything will get better? Because to do so is to fail to say, what is the Lord doing? Working out his extraordinary purposes in extraordinary ways in the lives of an ordinary person like me. 
Because at the end of the day, we're all very ordinary. Just like Ruth, just like Naomi, just like Boaz, we're all very ordinary people. And God, the extraordinary God, is working his purposes out for his glory. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that though our lives are very ordinary lives and though we do not often understand why the trials and difficulties uh, come upon us as they do, that we have a God that we can trust, a God who moves in mysterious ways, a God who plants your footprint on the seas and rides upon the storms. We thank you that you are our God and that we can call you our God because you have promised to be our God, that you are not ashamed to be called our God and that you have given us exceedingly great and precious promises in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the great redeemer and that you have come and that you have brought redemption and that you have called us to follow you. And so we pray, our God, that you would give everyone in this place the grace to resolve as Ruth resolved, to follow you and to commit ourselves to you even unto death. We pray, our God, that you would do this by your grace in our souls. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.